if you have feedback that says you're good you're strong you're doing well don't question it life's hard enough enough people are going to try to tear you down anyway when somebody is building you up take it absorb it use it and then pay it forward Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. You are listening to part two of my conversation with Maya Sanyal. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to hit pause, listen to the first part of our conversation, and then head back here. When Maya and I talked, we spoke for almost three hours that night, I think. (laughs) So it was a feat to edit it down even to, you know, almost two hours between the two episodes. But Maya just has so much wisdom. And in this second part of the conversation, she talks a lot about kind of her philosophy on what it means to get present, to create a little more spaciousness in our lives, how to notice some of the thinking traps and harmful, hurtful thought patterns that we have about ourselves, even how to respond to questions like, what's the point? Does anything really matter? Why should I do anything? Um, Some of those kind of fundamental existential questions, how she thinks about them and works with them, and some of the hope that she has now as she's lived life, gotten through some really tough seasons and dark spells, and how she finds wisdom and joy and depth and life on the other side. So this is a really special conversation and kind of the deep big questions that I really like to think about and talk about. And when I find someone like Maya who will really dive into the depths with me, it's very exciting. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and be sure to check out Maya on YouTube. You can search Alka Devika, A-L-K-A, D-E-V-I-K-A. To get some more of her wisdom, she's got lots of good videos on there you can check out. Take care. I want to believe it is very possible to be deeply content with life and to be deeply ambitious at the same time. Maybe my 60-year-old will look and say, yeah, yeah, that's what you thought. And again, I I don't know what that's going to be like, but in Mm -hmm. this moment, I have to believe that being content with what I have, being grateful for what I have, being proud of what I have achieved can stand directly next to and is not mutually exclusive with wanting more, dreaming more, desiring more. I, I, I don't find those to be contradictory as long as there's thinking and emotional check-ins involved. So what does, what does, does this mean in, in very simple terms? It, when I do my dishes, I'm completely happy. I'm doing something extremely mundane. But the fact is I have an apartment and running water and you know my hands are soapy and it's fun. And I have dishes to wash, which means I've had food to eat. If I start looking, again, it's that what, where do I focus my mind? If I'm being grateful, it's perfectly fine for me to feel super grateful for all the things that have to go right in my life for me to be standing at my sink doing dishes. We had one day of no water in my apartment, and that taught me a lot about a lot of things. Right. So at the same time, I'm still worrying about what is the message I want to send out? And what is the next YouTube video I want to make? And so then when I'm thinking about that, the training, again, I'm not yet good at it, but it is definitely a work in progress. I am a work in progress. Refocusing on that and saying, why is this important to do? And I, I do want to mention this. Perhaps it will help uh, younger millennials who are now professionals. If we are getting stuck in the who cares or why does it matter or um, who do I think I am, which are all the questions I ask myself every single day. So I am living it and I am speaking it even from that place still. I remind myself that there was a time when I would have desperately needed to hear 
some of those things from a peer or from somebody who's slightly older. And I didn't have that. So I was left as many of us were. Um, again, there is a value to some of the struggle, but some other part of the struggle can be a little less. If I'm ever wondering, you know, who wants to hear, I have this vision in my head that somebody who's perhaps, you know, a little younger and randomly comes to a video that says, A, you're going to figure it out. B, there's always hope. C, study your butt off. Walk into that room knowing that you know your stuff inside out. Nothing builds confidence more than knowing, you know, the way I say it, knowing your shit. You just need to know it, right? And that means hard work. But those three combinations of, of just believing that things will unfold because they do, never, ever giving up. I mean, that, is, that comes from a place of, again, having lost friends to depression. And if I could go back and tell them today with what I know, I would say, I promise you things are going to change because life is so long and so magical and things that seem impossible to conquer at the stage we are in when we are younger, it really is true. You look back 10 years later and you've survived the tsunami and you're still standing and you say, heck, if I did that, I can deal with this. But when we are younger, because we haven't lived long enough, we don't have the perspective of saying, okay, I survived that, I will also survive this. So that's where your voice matters because your voice might be the thing that helps that person say, okay, if Victoria is saying that this is going to get better and I trust Victoria, I'm going to study a little harder today or I'm going to not jump off a bridge, whichever, right, wherever that person is. So if for no other reason than people's voice matter, it's because somebody else out there who is at a more vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable place might make a better decision about her or his life based on what you've said. It sounds, again, very idealistic, I know, but in terms of passion, I think that is what I have to offer, is this lived trust. I've lived now through stuff long enough to know that despite the depression, you come outside of it, you come to the other side, and there is wisdom, and there is depth, and there is magic. And nobody can take that away from me because it's my lived experience. It's my lived story. And, and I want people listening to that to, to have that trust and that belief that life is a long journey and things unfold that we really aren't ever able to understand. Uh, you had said earlier, talk about your career trajectory. I don't have one. I'll be very honest. I've never had a plan. If anything, the only thing I've known to do is say no to things that didn't agree with my soul. I wouldn't even say values because I didn't know I had those values. It, it was only my academic training and the PhD and the counseling that gave me names for those feelings and those concepts. But I used to say no to things that just turned me off, which sometimes can be dicey as we've talked about the financial piece, right? So that's where, again, we need mentors to say, mm, that's not a right no. So it's a combination of trusting yourself, but also having your tribe, having people around you who, who you trust really do have your best interests at heart. Because we don't often, rarely, I guess, in this day and age, we have families who are able to be that, not because of lack of intention even, right? So it's both internal facing and external facing. We have to be very attuned to our insights and that takes training and listening and sitting quietly. One of my favorite uh, sayings from Mother Teresa is um, when I uh, pray, God listens to me. When I meditate, I listen to God. Mm. Uh, my other big, big, big favorite from Mother Teresa, and I, you know, if there's one thing I want to have my listeners leave with, it's probably this that she was asked at some point later in her life, 
you know, you started with so little and did such amazing work. Um, how did you do this great work that you did? And she said, well, we don't do great things. We do small things with great love. I am completely fine with that. Yeah, people need to find what resonates with them and for them. That's where it becomes a unique and individual journey. It's interesting that you bring up Mother Teresa because I think about, um, and I know she was a very complicated figure, um, but something when we think about passion and all of that um, and like feelings for, and values, you know, learn, when, when people kind of learned like the depth of her doubt and the periods of her life when she did not feel connected to God, you know, she yeah. at, at times felt a very strong relationship with God and at times felt a total lack. Yeah. Um, I find that so, it's such a helpful thing to know yep. <laughs> um, that she experienced great doubt and great emptiness. Um, and, you know, when you talk about mattering and belonging, it seems to me that it is very important to have relational, external community mattering and belonging, but it feels like a healthy spirituality would be an internal sense of mattering and belonging, um, regardless of where you find yourself. Like you saying, okay, Maya, you're kick-ass even if no one else sees it. There's a, set, there's a sort of internal sense of mattering and belonging there. Um, at least that's, what, that's how I'm hearing it. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. does that resonate with you? And could you identify like one or two, one or two things that have helped build an internal sense of mattering and belonging? Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic question. So I'm a big believer in data. So the, the idea that we have an internal sense, ha in my mind at least, also necessarily has to depend on and is built on a foundation of data. So why I believe I am pretty kick-ass just the way I am if I were to die tomorrow, for example, that's always the worry, right? That what have we left behind or, um, well, at least again, in, in my, where I am in life. Uh, but I think it's also always a question of what does it matter, right? Even if I'm 15 or 20 or 25, there's the, what, what does it matter? What's the point? That kind of existential concern is, is one of the deepest parts of what makes us human. Um, but over the years, and this is one of my absolute favorite stories, I have had to learn to accept proof that is provided to me with grace and humility so that I can then come to a place where I can have this, again, narrative that I am reasonably kick-ass in the little world that I inhabit simply because people have told me so. So over the last 20 years or so, I have had so many students tell me, Maya, you should have a YouTube video, a YouTube channel. And for the longest time, I used to laugh because I would have that question, why the heck, who would listen to me? I mean, one-on-one -on -one conversations like these, yeah, they are, they are fun and deep. But So there was always that sense of self-doubt. But one of the moments that really changed that was early in my graduate school experience uh, and I, I talk about this in a couple of my videos too, because it is so germane to this, this sense of having a, a sense of solidity today with space for growth. I would never say I'm done growing, but I would say the foundation for believing in my worth is pretty decent because I was in my third semester of graduate school in my PhD program. And the first two semesters, I had come from a very different system. I'd come from you know, studying only in India, where we didn't even have papers, we only had exams. And I, I did okay enough. I was trying to figure out the lay of the land of how to even study in the US, uh, who the hell was I to do a PhD, all of that mental script. But by the third semester, I had figured out what it was to write a thesis statement, what it was to write a good argument, because I'd had fantastic teachers. And so it goes both ways. We have to have the right teachers and we have to be ready to learn, right? So it's, it's never a one-way street. But I ended up with a straight 
A for three different courses that were all pretty challenging with pretty tough professors. And so I went to my academic advisor and I told her there's something wrong. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm not smart enough to get straight A's. She sat me down in her office and she said, all right, Maya, so here's the deal. You have three different professors, one of which is me, who are all tenured faculty who have been teaching for a long time, who have published books and have gone on talks and are well established in their field. And they have separately given you a, a grade that shows that you have intellectual capacity to do more with what you're learning. That's what A stands for, is that it's a testimony to your capacity to handle complex information in meaningful ways. And you're coming and telling us that all three of us have given, us, given you A's and it's, there's something wrong with it. So you're saying one of two things. Either you're saying we don't know what we're doing or you're saying we are liars. Take your pick. And that moment taught me for the first time because I've you know, obviously had other people over my lifetime, both build me up and tear me down as is everyone's experience. But that was a, a big wake up call from someone who called me out on my imposter syndrome bullshit because when one has provided the data without an agenda, that one is good enough and is capable of now taking it to the next level, it is hubristic to question it. And, and since then, I have become very attuned to feedback with both pride and humility. If somebody is telling me that I am doing well and I have made an impact, and I have students say that day in and day out, and as do many counselors and anybody who's in the helping profession. I think the difference is, unless we are again trained to take it with pride and humility, it kind of gets lost in the noise. But because of that one incident, I was able to really sit down and say, I will never question. With, it's, it's, a, it's a twisted kind of arrogance, right? That, oh, I still know better than all of you because I know that I'm a failure. And I know I'm dumb. And even if you keep telling me I'm not, I'm not it's clinging on to that uh, negative narrative. Because again, we are afraid of success because that means we have to step our game up. But since then, I have had so, so, so many instances where people have said and written uh, and referred, again, nothing massive, nothing big, but consistent enough for me to believe that at some point, I have to believe that if 10 people are telling me that I have made an impact on their lives, who am I to question it? So that's where the self-confidence comes from today, that enough people have said it to me with, again, no agenda. They're not, I'm not paying them money to say it. And it's a mind game. At some point, one has to accept uh, that positive feedback also with Again, like I, I, I call it pride and humility, because uh, once it's there, it's there, right? And I'm, tomorrow, everybody else might start saying I'm messing up, but that's going to be a different journey. That doesn't mean that what I've done so far in terms of being helpful and inspirational and productive just disappears. Again, it's not a one or the other. And so that's what I would say to people who are listening. If you have feedback that says you're good, you're strong, you're doing well, don't question it. Life's hard enough. Enough people are going to try to tear you down anyway. When somebody is building you up, take it, absorb it, use it, and then pay it forward. I love that. And it reminds me of what you've been talking about around training the mind because we are so much more likely if we get, I, you know, I had a new, a friend of mine, Andy Feldman on the podcast last year, he's a musician and an engineer. Um, and 
he said, you know, if I get, you know, 10 people after a gig tell me I did great and one person's like, oh yeah, you were okay. Like, I'm going to remember the one person who said, yeah, not so great. You know, like that's what the human mind does. That's the limbic system. Sure. Yeah. And so it is, it is a training to, to see and retain and remember and believe the good. And it also makes me think of, um, are you familiar with, uh, Dr. Kristen Neff, who wrote a book about self-compassion? I have heard the name, definitely. She, you know, she talks about self-compassion and how um, she says, you know, everyone is not so good at some things, average at a lot of things, and good at some things. Yep. And we are not a culture that, like, wants to believe that we are below average or average at anything. Like, even if even if we beat up on ourselves, we also secretly want to believe we're like above average at everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and she talks about just the power of being able to very honestly look at yourself and, and be able to say, okay, I'm not so great at that. I'm, I'm fine at that. And I am really good at that. And that yeah. everyone has something. And um, even if it's not always super obvious to you at first, or you don't feel like it's as valuable or something. Um, right that everybody has things that they are good at. Yeah, I call it the asset model mindset. If I sat down with five different people, and again, my, my career counseling, my counseling training, my writing teacher training has, I guess, willy-nilly helped me learn this, but I, I suppose I also have the wiring for it, which goes back to the very point we are talking about. Every single person we come across is good at a couple of things and with the potential of making that something that they can get super skilled at that doesn't mean that that has to be their passion i'm again very practical one of my favorite poets t.s Eliot. he was a banker during the day and then he went and wrote these amazing well in my perspective amazing poetry the rest of his life rest of his time so again, it's, it's, we don't necessarily have to be one or the other. It is completely possible in my mind to have a regular quote unquote ordinary career or a job even, and then to do things with the rest of our time that make us feel like we matter and belong and bring value. Everything doesn't have to be at the same level constantly. The job doesn't have to be passionate. The job can just be a job that brings home the food and the rent. And then there's other times that we can perhaps stop watching Netflix and go do something mm-hmm. or, or watch Netflix and write, you know, stories and, and productive critiques. So learning to look at life again in the, in the nuance, in the complexity is, is so helpful it is possible to say I am going to be aware of my skills and hone my skills. And, you know, I I think of it as, and I talk of it as uh, really learning one's trade. That doesn't mean trade in the limited sense, but whatever it is, one needs to be skilled at it. We have to be skilled at something in life. This is something else I wish I could go back to my twenties and redo because everybody has skills, innate skills, it, not, not even talent, just skills. Talent is also this, then becomes this big word. Skills lead to talent. Uh, leaders are made. It, it doesn't just, uh, John Maxwell has this wonderful concept, like we want microwave leaders, right? We want the leaders mm-hmm. to just be zapped into the microwave and out they come. And we, we want microwave everything. But the asset model, as opposed to the deficit model, so much of, I find, Western mindset is about fixing the deficit. And, and again, it, there's, there's very complex economic reasons why that, that, why that serves purposes, mostly nefarious ones. But if we shift that to an asset model and sit with people and say, okay, here's what you are good at, and here's what you believe is part of your system. Again, the values and the skills. 
And if we make it possible for people to grow in those, then over time, because there's more self-confidence, they are probably going to be successful at jobs and careers. And over time, because of the way human brains work, because they're starting from a place of self-confidence, they will be willing to learn about new things and scary things and maybe grow you know, spiritually or socially or however, right? Just the base, the foundational base of feeling strong and good about something opens up so many possibilities, right? I can be 95% broken, but there's 5% of me that is not broken. And this is going back to the 10 minutes a day of YouTube. If I spend time repetitively growing that unbroken piece of me, I think it's still going to be a better product of life at the end than having spent life trying to fix the 95% of brokenness only. We, we are stuck in this world of, and I think part of the challenge is English is a very binary language. Not always all languages are, but with English, it's very much broken or fixed, right? Right or wrong. And we have to keep pushing against that binary and saying, no, there's, some, there's a place in the middle where everybody is ordinary. At the end of the day, let's, let's just you know, face the facts. We're all going to be living and then we're all going to die. Right? There's just that, you know, death is another thing. When you see the Western cultures struggle with death as something to be shoved outside, just as you know, ages and elderly people needs to be put away out of, out of sight, out of mind. It's just the very ways we keep trying to separate very integral parts of the human experience is why I think so much of the heaviness and the weight and the despair and emptiness comes because we are trying to live incomplete, unbalanced lives. And being aware of death doesn't mean one has to give up living and growing and demanding more of oneself. Again, to me, it's just, it's not a binary. Um, I, I find so, so much struggle, uh, again, going back to my own life, was this, this idea that it's this or that. And if we can train our minds and our souls to feel space, you know, Brené Brown talks about wholeheartedness, just wholeheartedness with the sadness and with the fear and with the despair and with the excitement. Like, I don't want to feel ashamed about any feeling I ever have. I don't want to feel constrained by being told that, okay, yes, there is so much sadness in the world and goddess knows there is. At the same time, that still doesn't mean I can't do a tiny, tiny little bit to change my own lot or the five people who are in my friendship or community or family connections. Right? We, we are so stuck with this idea of unless it's big, it's meaningless. And there is so much space for hope if we can just learn to break through that because every little bit matters. And yes, we can also choose to dream big. And I don't see why one has to choose one over the other. Yes, your your thoughts and feelings about non-dualism really resonates with me. And trying to cultivate more of that space between that awareness and that space between experience and then the stories that we make up about it. Um, something that just a tactile thing that helps me with that. You know, a lot of people talk about how a meditation practice helps them with this. And I think for a lot of people now, that's just like too much. Like it's too overwhelming to even consider sitting in silence and, you know, for yep. Yep. an extended period of time. And I think kind of like you said, you went to Instagram to just meet your students where you are. I think we have to meet ourselves where we are. Mm -hmm. And for me, that can just look like literally putting my hand on my chest, like directly on the skin yep. and just like feeling my heartbeat 
or sitting, putting my feet flat on the ground and just feeling the ground beneath my feet and just breathing in and out, you know, doing four, seven, eight breathing. Yeah. Couple rounds of that. Yeah. And a couple of my favorites are closing my eyes and identifying five sounds. Mm. Identifying four things I can feel, tactile, butt on chair, fingers together, headphone on ear. It's again, bringing it back to, and I know a lot of conversation is happening now. And I think it needs to, because until there's a, everything has, has to come to a tipping point, right? And even though we know that meditation is becoming more commercialized and uh, spirituality is becoming more and more commercialized, sometimes I'll have conversations with people who are, this is going back to your previous point about distaste for commercialization. My approach is again, very practical. I'm like, if somebody gets to think about meditation because they saw it on a Instagram ad, and it starts them down a, a new way of thinking that they otherwise wouldn't have. I'm fine with that. I'm not happy about it, but we cannot, and we do not live in a pure world of access to things that are non-materialistic. And that is one of the key ideas of understanding even things like meditation. It's not and you know this, but I'm going to say this for anybody who's listening and perhaps is new to meditation. It is, honestly, it has nothing to do with sitting in silence. That is one way. As far as I'm concerned, if I'm, like I said earlier, if I'm doing my dishes and my focus is on how the dish feels in my fingers and how the soap and the warm water feels as the water is trickling through my fingers and how the dish feels when the soap is gone and my finger goes over it and it goes little squeak. And then how I'm putting it in the dish rack so that it doesn't fall over and break. That's meditation. It's, it's become this big fancy word that's very complicated in people's minds. And I'm not sure that that serves everybody i don't it doesn't serve me a purpose because i do tend to be very uh, tactile right and and over the years i've learned to say this is where i'm present this is all i'm doing i'm cutting the potatoes that's meditation or i'm listening to a song and listening to music helps in particular because we are able to shut down our thinking brain, which as much as I'm a fan of, I also am very aware that even that has its place in the scheme of things. But learning to think about the, the, the smallness of things, the ordinariness of things, without being afraid that somehow that is going to diminish the extraordinariness of our lives. That, I think, is a goal that is much needed in the world we live in. Because we've all, tr we are trying to live in the extraordinariness of things in the large, loud ways. And it's not working, right? Anybody who's tuned in to any extent, we all know that people are exhausted with social media and people are exhausted by the advertisements and the quick fixes. Uh, even if we don't know it, we know it. So it sounds radical, but, and maybe it is radical to start thinking about how small things are not small in their meaning and their purpose. If you really take away the, again, that, that illusion, there is no difference between somebody writing code and somebody cooking and somebody walking down the street and somebody playing with one's dog. They're all just activities. The question is, what is the mindset? What is the expectation? What is the, you know, my favorite business term now, ROI, because everybody's obsessed about return on investment. Everything has return on investment if we know how to see it. And that is where the mental training is so important because there is as much return on investment in getting a $2 million sale for one person 
as there is on somebody else. For example, me, I've just applied for an emotional support animal because my apartment complex doesn't allow pets. And I think I'm almost kind of sort of there, but you know, you don't know until it actually happens. The ROI on the effort I'm putting in to get my doggy to me is probably just as much as the person who makes that killer sale. Yeah. It all matters and it all belongs. It all matters. It all belongs. And we, we can make it small and large at the same time. I can be completely content and be extremely ambitious in the same moment or, you know, very rapidly one moment to the next. I'm thinking of too about how even monks and nuns, you know, people in religious, spiritual orders, so much of their time is actually doing dishes. <laughs> and, and giving talks and mm -hmm. yeah. And the ordinary and that yeah. um, for those really contemplative people, yes, they spend a lot of time in silence and prayer and things like that, meditation, but all of the spiritual teachers that I've connected to have said, I'm still praying when I'm doing the dishes, you know, yes. or I'm still meditating when I'm doing the dishes. Yes. I'm just being present. If we yes. want to take meditation out of it, because it scares some people, it's just being present. Yes. And it's practice. It's tremendous practice. But there is one, once one gets the hang of it, it does bring great joy because for a second, for a few seconds, we are present. Right, the noise, the mental noise, or even the world's noise is not there. And I cannot explain what it is like, but I have lived experience. And again, I'm very much a beginner meditator. I will always be. That's a key part of being meditators is you just, you always show up at the mat like it's the first time. The moment you think you've become a, a good meditator, right then is a big stop to question what does that mean? <laughs> And that's what I love about, I think, that kind of spiritual mindset is there's always this gentle questioning uh, and, and refusal to take things for granted. The moment we have a word that, quote unquote, is judgmental, even if it's a good word, right? There's just this little bit of space to say, wait, what does, what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm a good meditator? What does it mean that I'm successful? What does it mean that I'm a failure? It just opens up this tiny little space, you know, very gentle little space to say, and in the Buddhist tradition, we say that it's the, the wise mind, right? The, the big self that just very, I think of it as a very maternal uh, emotion, just kind of looks at the young child and says, but what does that mean? You, I see you are suffering so much using this word that I'm a failure. And I, I use it particularly for the, the quote-unquote negative words, right? Because that's what creates so much suffering. And like, what does it mean when you say you're not smart? Like, for real, what, what does that mean? And once you start pushing people, most people are able to go a bit deeper and start seeing the, the lack of logic behind the words. And I think that is where the greatest freedom comes. We cannot change the systems overnight, but I think if we can walk away feeling just a little bit better about ourselves, gentler and kinder towards ourselves, and usually then it translates into feeling better and gentler about others. As far as I'm concerned at this moment, that is as well-lived a life as any. Yes. And I think any spiritual practice worth its salt offers you rest in love that yeah. whether you're a good meditator or a bad meditator in yeah. your mind, whatever that means, doesn't yeah. even matter nope. <laughs> that ultimately you can rest yeah. in just a sense of love. And that's also something that I, I know that I just need to even that is practice and just um, not something that I, I can force for myself, but something that I can just hope for and trust that, okay, maybe one day I'll feel that 
the hope and the trust comes with the idea that I'm going to keep practicing. And again, these are not big things. So one of my favorites is, you know, just questioning myself gently when I use a word that's kind of self-abusive, right? My One of my favorite words used to be that I'm so stupid. It's a word I'd used forever and ever and ever until I started being able to say, uh, and this is where I, I bring in the, the image of a mama bear, um, very much protective, like almost viciously protective in a kind way to say, wait, what means, what does it mean to say I'm not smart? Let's have a conversation about that with oneself or if necessary with a trusted mentor. Um, but but doing that over and over again, because we don't, our minds don't like changing the way it operates. Right? So there is a lot of consistency required. And that's where, again, I bring it very gently back to the idea of practice, the, the 10 minute YouTube, slow, slow and steady. Every time I use the word, I would now I stop and say, wait, let's, let's just think about that for a second. And having done that for a few years now, I rarely find myself using that word against myself. But when I do, I immediately stop and say, okay, this is coming from a place of pain and fear. Something's gotten triggered. But if I didn't commit to doing, and this is why I'm a big fan of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because it, for people who are more logic-minded, it works beautifully and other people can be trained too, but it just very gently brings back the question of what is the data? What are the facts? What is the evidence? Which as a writing teacher is like music to my ears because there's a, always a question of a thesis statement is about a claim and an evidence, and then why does it matter? So it kind of all starts coming back together for me because there is a place for logic and there's a place for gentleness. But the practice has to be, I'm going to question that thought every time. I have to commit to stopping and questioning. And then the hope and the trust comes until you see it in action because it does change the way we think. It's, it's a matter of neural patterning, right? It's, it's about neurobiology. When we keep reframing a thought, there comes a tipping point after which the reframed thought is the one through which the electricity goes in the neural pathway. But until that point, we have to hope and trust that this has been impacting me and it will change. Yes. It's that very, very vague space in between where you do it based on trust that other people who I trust and who know more have said that if I keep doing it, at some point it will happen. And when it does, and this is to go back to your other question about, you know, how is it that I feel confident? When it does, you know it, right? You feel it in your being. You feel it in the very core of your soul that, no, this is right. This is something that they're saying, and I know it now. Yes, it's like just as thoughts and feelings can drive our actions, our actions can our actions can change our thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so that's one of the core tenets of behavioral therapy. Yes. You know, without the cognitive part is, you know, where the, where the body goes, there goes the mind. Uh, and again, in terms of writers and inspiration, if I sit around waiting to feel inspired to start writing, it ain't going to happen. Inspiration comes once I start writing. Some days it comes, some days it doesn't. Same thing with passion, which we started off with. Passion just doesn't come and sit on our lap, right? We start doing things and eventually some of it, one of it becomes a passion. So we have this, this we have everything topsy-turvy right now, <laughs> right? Um, and, and again, that's sad in a way, but in another way, because we know it's topsy-turvy, there's this place for intervention. And that's where the hope comes in. Because we know it's a problem, which means we can work towards solving it. And I think that's, that's a fantastic place to be. 
despite the despair and this fear. Yes. Like not knowing that there's a problem is really the biggest problem. You know, I like to ask one of two questions at the end of each conversation. My, my standard is what's something you're learning about or growing into lately. But then I also, at last summer, I started sometimes instead asking what's something that's, that makes you feel alive lately. And um, I feel like we've been talking a lot about things that you're learning about if one of those questions feel has more of a pull for you right now, feel free. But I'm more inclined right now to ask what what's making you feel alive lately, knowing that in the current situation we're in, it has a totally different meaning than it did last July. What keeps me feeling alive lately is exactly the same thing that made me feel alive 20 years ago when I started teaching, which is walking into a room, working with people and saying, okay, let's let's figure some shit out. Right. Let's just accept that there's a lot of existential suffering that we cannot change. And then there's a lot of situational suffering that we can. And of course, that's not how I, well, sometimes I talk like that with my students too. Um, I don't always try to dumb it down at the beginning. Uh, but, but this sense of speaking about what I have learned and trusting that somewhere, somehow speaking it has value, even though I have no idea whether that's true of this moment. But talking about, for example, the mental health advocacy, I will not be convinced that talking about mental health and how to figure out being whole with depression can ever be useless. Just me saying it changes the energy of the world of the, you know the, of the physics of it and i just believe that maybe it's not true but a lot of things are not true but we believe so i'm just going to believe that and, and this is what gets me alive to say hey if you are struggling with disabilities or mental health challenges one believe that there's hope just don't question it and then figure out how to find that hope and how to get it together so that you can then give somebody else hope. That's what gets me alive. And the second thing in a more situational way, I have to practice what I'm preaching. So I constantly talk to students about taking risks and trying out new things and, and being afraid and doing it anyway. So that's what I've been doing recently. You know, I'm a, as, much as this conversation sounds and is so vibrant, I, I'm an extreme introvert. And I'm completely fine not talking to people for days at a time. So putting videos out there, doing uh, Instagram is agony. And yet that is just as with any other meditative practice, that is a place of gentle questioning. Why the agony? What is the expectation? Do I really want to become you know, somebody with 3 million followers overnight. And if I don't get that, then it's all a waste. But so much of the thinking that traps us uh, is fascinating for me at this moment to watch because I'm trained to both identify and help people counter that kind of trapped, uh, not of very good use thinking. And yet I see myself do it day and night. So what's really exciting for me in the moment is this understanding that the mind is an absolutely amazing machine. And we either learn how to work with it and respect it deeply, just the same way. So my metaphor for this is how many people in the world uh, drive cars versus how many people know what um, is underneath the hood. 99% of the people who drive a car have no idea what's going on or where a carburetor is. So what keeps me excited and alive is A, the understanding that I have no idea how my mind works, just little bits and pieces. But to realize how much of our minds 
when they're when it's untrained can work against our well-being and our capacity to be loved and feel loved and and feel belonging and feel mattering and just feel like not being weighed down all the time it's the mind that has the ability to undo that sense of exhaustion and weight that i would say 90% of the world is carrying around so i'm i'm really fascinated at watching my mind do its thing and saying wow you really are powerful in in making me feel paralyzed because i will spend days wanting to do one video and not getting it done because of fear yes right. so the aliveness is from this awareness that this is how powerful the mind is we have so little idea of this incredible tool that we have the the gift uh, the privilege of just having and being able to talk about that and spread the idea that we need to talk about neurobiology and learn how to practice compassion and uh, anything skills related over and over repetition is the key it sounds i don't know to me it's like if this is all i do the rest of my life i i will look back at it and say my life was you know well lived that's a fan a fantastic note to end on <laughs> yeah you know i'm very blessed i mean i i live in magic including the days and days of uh depression and darkness but it's it's i live in magic i am so incredibly amazed at where my life is at this moment it's pretty mind blowing my i feel calmer after talking to you <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> so thank you that's hope just keep doing what you're doing So we will meet up at some point physically yes. like like yes. the good old free covid days. Yes. <laughs> I love you so much. Thank you. This was a much love to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast@gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit the Moon by Paul Finn.